Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. You're here on Chad Theory. I'm your host, Chad James. Hope you're having a lovely week. We've got a bit of a cool change come this way here in Sydney. What it's a top of 20 after that scorcher yesterday. So a welcome change in the weather at least. But today we're looking at the sad passing of Jim Molden. You've probably heard he was a 40-year career veteran in the army and then he became a senator. And he sadly passed away after a two-year battle with prostate cancer. But like we know, the Liberal Party, they still don't get it. The factional games have started and the race to replace Jim Molan in the Senate down in Canberra here in New South Wales is ramping up. So I'm going to take you through all those details. I'm going to explain why I think the Liberal Party is still using this outdated system and we need a refresh of the way that we view politics here in New South Wales and Australia more broadly. But as well as that, I'm going to have a look at Linda Reynolds. She's gone to court over claims made by Brittany Higgins that were published in the book Ego, Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal Party's Civil War. So that's in the Western Australian Supreme Court, aggravated damages in that one. So I'll take you through those details. Also, Queensland are changing laws so that the identity of accused can be made public before rape trials. What? You probably haven't heard of this. So I'll uh, get you across all of it and, and help you to understand the significance of this. And on top of that, I'm gonna, I'm actually going to do a little bit of a round trip with the legal cases today because i got a little bit of a bone to pick. I've got to bean my bonnet. <laughs> I don't know. Some of you like it when I rant. So if you like listening to me rant about the, the law and the legal system and how we need to protect it, stick around because uh, there's definitely multiple threats on multiple angles here aimed at our legal system. So I'll take you through a bunch of legal stuff. There's also this AFP case where the Australian Federal Police have completely bungled a multi-million dollar fraud case. And now the individuals who were charged are suing the Commonwealth for millions of dollars in defamation. I mean, the circus never ends. But before we get into the circus and this never-ending merry-go-round, wherever you're listening to this podcast, help us out. Give us a five-star rating. Let others know you love Chad Theory. Remember, we don't have ads. We rely on the support from our listeners. So consider making a PayPal donation. There's a link below and becoming a paid subscriber to get access to exclusive content. Olivia and I have been working on a special on pokies, the truth about pokies. We're going to take you through so many different details. You're going to know everything about pokies. And I'll tell you what, it is absolutely disgusting. So look out for that one. That's exclusive to paid subscribers. But don't worry about that for now. Massive show for you right here, right now. Put your feet up, relax, and let's get into it. You probably heard recently about the passing of Jim Mullen. He was a 40-year career veteran of the army. Uh, he went to Iraq, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, East Timor, Malaysia, Germany, and the United States. Now, after sadly losing a two-year battle with prostate cancer, the Liberal Party has to put a replacement forward to fill his spot in the Senate for New South Wales down in Canberra. At the moment, there are four federal senators from the Liberal Party representing New South Wales. The moderate faction currently have two, that's Andrew Bragg and Marise Payne. Then you have Senator Holly Hughes. She's from the centre-right. And Jim Molan was from the hard right. 
So there are currently discussions about delaying the nomination for this new senator until after March 25th, which is the New South Wales state elections, so that everyone can sort of position themselves given what takes place at that election. Now, again, the passing of Jim Mullen has left a five-year upper house vacancy because, remember, senators get six-year terms. He was only one year into his recent term, so that leaves five years left. So how exactly will the Liberals do this? Well, they have a 750-member state council, and they will vote on who will fill that position. So as you can imagine, whenever you leave something up to the parties like this, the factional wars start yet again. We just can't seem to get away from this with the Liberal Party. It's becoming quite excruciating, in my opinion. Now, you've probably also heard about the names that have been thrown around. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Tony Abbott, former Prime Minister. Remember, he lost his seat of Warringah at the 2019 election. Apparently, uh, some senior Liberals are calling for him to be put forward on the ballot for the Senate vacancy. You may have also heard of Conchita Viravanti-Wells. She was pushed down the Senate ticket by the far-right faction in favour of Jim Molan. She might be in the mix. We don't know yet. There's also New South Wales Transport Minister Andrew Constance, former Wentworth MP Dave Sharma, one-time Liberal candidate for Warringah, uh, Jane Bunkle, and remember Catherine Deves, the controversial trans-right critic? She was unsuccessful contesting uh, for the Sydney seat of Warringah for the Libs at the federal election in uh, last year in May. So apparently she's interested as well. Now, you might be asking the question, I mean, how does that work? Because if there's a re retirement or a passing of a member of parliament in the House of Reps, it goes to a, a by-election, right? The Liberal Party just doesn't get to replace them. So, so how come it works this way in the Senate? Well, if you know how the Senate works, basically each state at the federal elections have 12 Senate spots and the territories have two each. But the territories go up for re-election every election cycle, whereas, as you know, Senate seats, they have two terms or their term is double the length of the lower house. So the lower house is three years. So therefore, the Senate is six years. So they're quite long terms. Mind you, in New South Wales, they're eight-year terms. <laughs> Imagine, it's almost a decade. So then because these candidates come from the state and they represent the state as a single electorate, as opposed to, you know, uh, North Sydney or the seat of Mitchell or Kuyong or wherever it is, you know, smaller uh, sized electorates, that means that the party has to choose via a ranking system who they will put forward to fill their Senate seats if they get enough votes above the line. Because remember, most people vote above the line when it comes to the Senate, at least. I think it's a very small percentage of people who actually vote below the line on the Senate ticket. So by virtue of the fact that most people vote above the line, the party has to have some sort of ranking system to determine who goes through if the party gets enough votes above the line for that respective state. So that's why when there's a Senate spot available for whatever reason, the party has to determine because the party owns that spot, not the individual. Now, interestingly, 
Jim Molan, he was given the fourth spot, which was declared unwinnable on the Senate ticket at the 2019 election, but he ran this massive campaign where he urged his constituents to vote for him below the line, and he actually finished with the most votes by an individual candidate. However, he still failed to be elected in his own right, and that was for a second time. So he was actually appointed to the casual vacancy left by Arthur Sinodinus when he resigned in November 2019. Now, let me tell you what I really think about all this, because this stuff really gets under my skin. These factional deals are absolutely ridiculous and they're anti-democratic. So here's how it works, right? There's an informal agreement in the New South Wales Division's conservative and moderate factions. So Jim Molan is expected to be replaced by a member of his own right faction, and the moderates are apparently meant to back him in exchange for support for a moderate woman to replace Marie's Payne when she retires. So again, there are four federal senators from the Liberal Party representing New South Wales. The moderates currently have two of them. That's Andrew Bragg and Marise Payne. And Senator Holly Hughes is from the centre-right. And Jim Mullen was from the hard-right. So in New South Wales, the hard-right faction only had Jim Mullen. So they get to, presumably with this agreement, replace him with another hard-right factional candidate. But the thing that really gets under my skin is the expectation that Marie's Payne resigns. Apparently, when she was put onto that ticket and when she was given that opportunity to be a Liberal Party senator from New South Wales, there was an unwritten agreement that she would always step down early and retire. I mean, the idea that there's an agreement behind closed doors where a senator has agreed within their party to retire before they see out their term? I mean, how does that sit with you? Because for me, I find that outrageous. If you're elected to the Senate, you are elected by the people. And the problem is that the parties have so much power in this situation because they effectively determine the ranking system for these candidates to be put forward on their ticket because most of the voting occurs above the line. Therein lies the problem. We really need to do something about this, where you have this pressure for sitting representatives of these massive electorates, being the states, sitting in the Senate in Canberra, completely under the control of the party system, and not even the party system, the factional party system. These are the faceless men that the Labor Party uh, were infamously known for previously. But I get that the Liberal Party have to replace a senator after the passing of Jim Molan, But the backroom deals and factional agreements, it's just so outdated, especially that expectation on Marie's pain to be replaced before the end of her term. Now, one more note. Tony Abbott, he lost his seat. Catherine Deves is another name that's been thrown around here. She didn't win at the last election. She got pipped by a a teal independent. So why would it be a good idea to slot them in unelected to the Senate. Why would you reward them and bring them in sort of on the back end and and get them in so that they can be decision makers in the Senate? Anyway, this uh, I think is something that we need to address. And uh, one way of addressing it is for more and more people to understand how this system works. 
So share this, get this out, send it to people that you think might be interested in this political factional class that sits behind the scenes so that we can uh, all educate ourselves as to what's really going on in these backroom deals. Now, I want to explore a couple of legal issues that have been sort of floating around in my periphery for the last few days or the last week or so. So let me take you through these one by one and, and we can sort of wrap them all up together at the end. I, I promise you there's a, uh, there's, there's a point here, which I'm sure uh, most of you will appreciate once we get to it. So we know Linda Reynolds, we know Brittany Higgins, we know that Brittany Higgins was employed in Linda Reynolds' office at the time of her alleged rape, the claim that she is sticking by even after Bruce Lerman, uh, even after the trial of Bruce Lerman was uh, dismissed, thrown out because uh, Brittany Higgins wasn't able to, for mental health reasons, continue to a retrial given that the jury was thrown out for misconduct. I mean, goodness, it's just so loaded. But Linda Reynolds is demanding that a book detailing political controversies, including Brittany Higgins' rape allegations, be removed from publication, so just pulled from the shelves. Linda Reynolds' lawyers have filed a writ against two parties in Western Australia Supreme Court and she's seeking aggravated damages over the contents of the book Ego, Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal Party's Civil War. So this book was written by uh, Australian Financial Review journalist, political journalist about Malcolm Turnbull versus Scott Morrison and all that internal Liberal Party turmoil. It was released back in June and, like I said, was focused on former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's campaign against his successor, Scott Morrison, and all the infighting that came with it. But in this book, there are also several Liberal Party political controversies, and there's a whole chapter dedicated to Brittany Higgins' rape allegations against uh, Bruce Lerman, who was a fellow staffer at the time. Now, this book was actually temporarily pulled from the shelves uh, when it was released, because if you remember the timing back in June, that's when the first trial was meant to start against uh, Bruce Lemon based on Brittany Higgins' allegations, but it was postponed because of fears that it would interfere with the trial. Remember Lisa Wilkinson did that uh, acceptance speech at the Logies? So she obviously didn't get the memo, but but after all of this, the book was then re-released. Now, the, the writ that was submitted to the WA Supreme Court doesn't go into the detail about the actual defamatory contents, but if you've actually read it, there's a section that suggests Linda Reynolds told Brittany Higgins that non-consensual sex was the cost of being female. Goodness me. So again, presumably these are allegations that Linda Reynolds thinks are just simply not true. There are also several other passages in there that uh, Linda Reynolds' legal teams will look at. But Linda Reynolds made this comment in relation to this whole saga. So let me read you what she had to say. Incorrect and irresponsible media coverage regarding myself and my conduct in respect of events concerning Ms. Brittany Higgins has damaged my reputation and caused me considerable distress. In light of the conclusion of the criminal trial and the resolution of the civil action between Ms. Higgins and the Commonwealth, remember that multi-million dollar payment? Anyway, she continues, 
I am now at liberty to take steps to vindicate my reputation. I have engaged leading defamation lawyers to assist me. I will not otherwise comment on the actions I have taken or that I intend to take. So that's the update on what's happening with Linda Reynolds and this book. Uh, At least Brittany Higgins isn't directly involved in this, but they are comments that she allegedly made that made their way into this book. So we'll see what happens there. But now let's move away from Canberra and go all the way up to Queensland in an unrelated issue because Queensland have these really interesting laws. So under Queensland law, people accused of serious sexual offences cannot be named in media reports until they're committed to stand trial. So the Queensland government has come out and they've said, we're going to amend this state law that prevents media organisations naming a high-profile man accused of rape who failed to turn up to a court hearing. What? So here are the details. Now, I know the identity of this man, but I cannot share that with you because I would be in contravention with these Queensland laws. However, this is what we do know. Toowoomba detectives charged the man with two counts of rape over an incident in October of 2021 The man did not turn up for his initial hearing in Toowoomba Magistrate's Court, but was represented by his lawyer. Magistrate Kay Ryan granted bail, but banned the accused from leaving the country in order that he surrender his passport to police. Okay, fine, pretty standard. And he's also subject to a number of residential bail conditions. He cannot make contact with the alleged victim. And his case has been adjourned for committal mention on February the 22nd. So a spokesperson has come out for uh, the Attorney General in Queensland and said the government is expecting to introduce a bill later this year to get rid of this law that allows this man to remain anonymous. Here's what the spokesperson said. The Palaszczuk government is supporting in full or in principle all 188 recommendations from the Women's Safety and Justice Task Force Report 2. This includes a recommendation to remove the restriction on the publication of the identity of an adult accused of a sexual offence before a committal hearing where it would not lead to the identification of a victim survivor. Now, I don't like this. If you've been following me for a while, you'll know how passionate I am about these basic legal principles that all persons are equal before courts and tribunals, that We have the right to a fair and public hearing before a competent, independent and impartial court or tribunal established by law. I really, really feel strongly about those legal principles. Now, I think we should have this Queensland law Australia-wide. It would save the media from themselves. The damage to an individual's reputation, right, after being charged with a a serious sexual offence in this instance, should be protected until they actually go to trial because they're still innocent at that point. The damage to their reputation at that precious point in time is also something that we should be protecting, not just the anonymity of the victim, which obviously is very, very important as well. 
Once they are committed to stand trial, then their name should be made public. Again, I fully agree with this Queensland law and they should not be repealing it for political reasons. Again, I cannot mention who this individual is, but it's quite obvious that there is a push to publicize this man's name and to use this as the impetus moving forward to be able to name these men when they've only been charged before they've actually been committed to trial. Because remember, before you go to trial, a whole number of things could happen, you know, that could stop the charges going to trial, but the reputational damage still remains. Now, I'm going to pivot again (laughs) to a completely different case to further prove my point as to why this is such a big problem and why we need to be speaking up about this to preserve the integrity of our legal system. Now, you probably haven't heard about this case, so let me take you through the details and get you up to speed. It really is interesting, right? So two childcare operators were charged with rorting government subsidies with phantom children in this well-publicized AFP, that's the Australian Federal Police. They did a raid And now these operators of these childcare centers, they're seeking millions of dollars in compensation after the case was dropped. So what are the details? There's a woman, her name's Ola Uda. She's 44. She had a partner, Amgad Shahada. He's 49. So they've claimed in a defamation action that the AFP botched its investigation into their multi-million dollar childcare Business. It was, I think it's like a $10 million childcare business, big money here. And it, it collapsed. The whole case collapsed after the charges were made public. That's the key. So they were arrested in November 2020 when 150 AFP officers raided properties across Melbourne, across Sydney. It involved several different government departments, thousands of documents. This was huge. Now, days after the raid, the Australian Federal Police held a press conference to announce that it had dismantled an alleged criminal network that was defrauding millions worth of childcare subsidies. They were spending it on luxury goods and different investments. You know, this is uh, newsworthy, right? I mean, it's, it's got all the hallmarks. There are also allegations that they had allegedly received COVID-19 stimulus payments, you know, JobKeeper, that they weren't entitled to. They also owned a restaurant. I mean, this is really weird. Now, as a result, the AFP and its partners investigated payments of more than $15 million. Here's a quote from the AFP. This is money that belongs in the hands of our community to help care for some of our most vulnerable persons. I agree. We allege that out of greed, it has instead been used to foot the bill for extensive real estate portfolios, overseas travel, and other luxury items. Now, the names of the individuals, that they, the, those two individuals, they were not named in that press conference, but they were identified later as the alleged masterminds behind this syndicate, uh, syndicate in media reports of their arrest. So they were charged with conspiring with the intention to dishonestly cause a loss to the federal government, but the case was dropped when it reached court. So now they're suing them in a defamation action against the Commonwealth of Australia. This is down in Victoria in the Supreme Court. 
saying that the AFP has harmed their reputation. They're seeking compensation because their childcare business was destroyed as a result. Uh, it was worth more than $10 million. It had annual profits of over $2.5 million. They're also seeking aggravated damages for the uh, conduct of the AFP. Now, here are some of the claims that they're making. The press conference was undertaken for the sole or dominant purpose of seeking to promote the AFP and to improve the standing and reputation of certain members of the AFP. There was otherwise no legitimate forensic need or purpose to hold the press conference. The pair claimed there was no reasonable basis for the allegations. The AFP should have known the subsidies could be claimed without children attending childcare for absent days. I mean, there are all these various reasons that these payments could have been legitimate according to the individuals. Now, I don't know why the case was dropped. In true form, the AFP simply dropped the charges. They've only confirmed the charges have been dropped, but are refusing to provide any further comment. Now, the thing that frustrates me about this, I mean, let's just have a look at all of this together. I mean, the Stuff with Linda Reynolds and that publication, that's fine. That doesn't involve taxpayers' money, so that doesn't worry me too much. This stuff down with the AFP in the Victoria Supreme Court, I mean, we could see the Commonwealth up for millions in damages here. The basis of this legal action is to seek damages from the Commonwealth for coming out, doing this press conference, publicizing these charges, going on and on and on about how amazing they are. They've pulled this criminal syndicate apart, millions of dollars in federal funds that were misused and wrongfully claimed. And then out of nowhere, they just drop the charges. We don't know why. And that's how it is. Now they're suing. And, and this is the thing. I mean, let's get back to the point here. These Queensland laws, like I'm saying, that prevent the identity. I mean, it's it's a completely separate scenario. We're talking about sex crimes, quite serious sex crimes up in Queensland. But my point in general about all of this, to tie it all together, is this. Remember, all persons are equal before courts and tribunals. We have a right to a fair and public hearing before a competent, independent, and impartial court. Fine. But what happens before you get to court? We need to have rules out there, guys, to protect people, to protect institutions from charges being thrown around. And then, because for those of you who don't quite fully appreciate how this works, let me, let me explain this to you, right? When police and prosecutors feel like they have enough evidence to prosecute someone, that they will charge you, Okay. They haven't fully conducted their investigation at that point. They've only started it. So what they do is they charge you and then you've probably heard, uh, let me give you an example, uh, the, the Cassius Turvey case. You've probably heard that the defendant has appeared in a couple of uh, committal hearings. So basically what they do, I think there was one literally this week, they, the, the prosecution goes to the court, the defendant appears, he hasn't even made a plea yet, but they basically go to the court and the, the court asks them, are you ready to go to trial? And the prosecutor in this case, the Cassius Turvey case, the, the prosecutor says, uh, no, we're not ready, we need more time because they're still putting together their case. So just because you're charged 
doesn't mean that the prosecution is ready to go to trial. There's, they're still investigating. That's why I think while that process is taking place, there should be very strong and, and rigid laws around media publicizing and publishing the names and of, of individuals and institutions during that investigative stage in case they drop the charges. It's very important. Now, now, mind you, you know, these rape cases, I'm sure a lot of them will go to trial and you'll see some uh, guilty convictions. Fine. Okay. I'm not saying that we should bend over backwards to protect the identity of, of guilty people. Even once the trial has started, sure, publicize their name because the prosecution has determined when it goes to trial at that point that they have enough to make a case. Now, I'm satisfied that at that point, they uh, should be publishing the names of the individuals involved. Now, that's my view. Uh, feel free to disagree. You can get in contact with me on Instagram or Twitter. My handle is at Chad Theory Show. Make sure you give me a follow as well so you can stay up to date with everything I'm doing. That's at Chad Theory Show on Instagram and Twitter. Also, don't forget, while you're here, give us a five-star rating on the podcast app that you're listening to us on. Let people know you love Chad Theory and consider making a PayPal donation. Link in the description and becoming a paid subscriber for additional content. That's it from me. I'll catch you same place, same time tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in. See you, folks. Bye.